Hello friends and welcome to The 5 By, your source for rapid-fire board game reviews. In this episode, Sarah hunts down the right numbers in Cat Sudoku. I attempt to please the Tsar with my building skills in Red Cathedral, while crafts custom dice as a dwarf hero in Dice Miner, and Jose, in his debut on The 5 By, works hard for guild membership in Dale of Merchants. But first, Ruth explores an uninhabited island in Lost Ruins of Arnak. Hello, 5 by listeners, it's Ruth here. Now, for various reasons, I haven't been gaming as much as I used to, but today I want to talk about one game that has managed to hit the table during the last year, Lost Ruins of Arnak. Released in 2020, this game from married design duo Min and Elwyn combines deck building with worker placement to let one to four players explore dig sites and conduct research to find a temple of legend. In other words, it lets you live out an Indiana Jones adventure, albeit one with a lot less death traps and Nazis. Published by CGE, our next combination of fun gameplay, luscious art, and great bits makes for an excellent way to spend a couple of hours at the table. Player turns in Arnak consist of taking one main action and as many free actions as you wish from those you have available. Main actions involve exploring a dig site, defeating a guardian, buying a card, playing a card, moving on the research track, or simply passing. And the actions are typically paid for in resources gained from the free actions, which are found on cards, on the player boards, and on assistant and defeated guardian tiles. So some player turns can end up involving a long chain of card play and free actions to earn and convert the resources needed for the main action, and figuring out how to best combine everything is key to doing well. This is especially true when it comes to moving on that research track, as taking this action can be really pricey, so using free actions at the right time is key to making progress. But that progress does not only allow you to earn points, it sometimes offers you the chance to shed negative cards or obtain valuable assistance. Arnak combines its deck building with worker placement, and this is where the theme of exploration really comes to the fore. Players each get two archaeologist meeples that can go to already uncovered locations and bring back known resources, or can be sent to discover new dig sites further inland which offer the promise of more valuable but unknown resource combinations. The travel costs are paid by discarding cards featuring the right type of transportation. Boats for coastal sites, cars for heading inland, and planes to get, well, anywhere. But discovering a new and exciting ruin within Arnak's jungles also attracts the attention of one of the island's guardians, giant creatures that can be defeated for points and future free actions. However, if at the end of the round you leave a site without actually taking care of the Guardian, your archaeologist brings back a fear card to clog up your deck and reduce your final point total. Now those player decks are small enough that you're going to play through them pretty quickly, so there is a real desire to optimize the cards you add for the best combos and to find ways of getting rid of that lingering fear. Cards can be added to your deck in the form of useful items and rare artifacts, each purchased with a different resource. The artifact cards are particularly interesting as you get to activate them for free as soon as you buy one, but future uses are going to cost you a tablet, meaning that occasionally you'll buy one in late game purely because it gives you what you need right now while fully expecting to never use the card again. It's nice to get at least one guaranteed use out of what can be an expensive card purchase, and it can be extremely helpful for getting the last thing you need for a future action when the available worker placement spots aren't going to help. 
Each round of the game continues until all players have passed, and then the board is going to be reset for the next one. Our next played over five rounds, and the biggest round-to-round changes are that the available cards will shift to show more artifacts and less items, and the player turns are going to start taking longer as people build up more elaborate combinations of those free actions and special card effects. After the fifth round, players are going to count up the points they've earned and declare a winner. And those points come from everywhere. Idols earned from discovering sites, guardians that have been defeated, cards you've purchased, and research track progress are all going to earn you points, while the fear cards you've earned are going to take them away. This lets players explore various strategies rather than being locked into a single way to play, and allows for a lot of replayability, as another game of Arnak means the chance to try doing something different. The game also has a second layout on the back of the board featuring different travel costs and a new research track, and includes components for a solo game, while even having a full solo campaign available through CG's website if you'd like to change up the Arnak experience even more on future plays. Now, I love great production values when combined with fun gameplay, and here Arnak does not disappoint. The board is quite the table hog, but it is beautifully illustrated by a team of artists under the direction of Jacob Pulitzer. The punchboard coins and compass tokens are great, the tiles are thick and great quality, and the more valuable tablet arrowhead and gem resources are molded plastic in various finishes, all of which look amazing. Overall, Arnak lets me spend an hour or two in a lushly illustrated setting while enjoying the satisfaction of puzzling out the perfect combination of tokens and cards to get exactly what I need for an impressive turn. The building complexity of turns throughout the game lets newer players ease into the action and discover what's possible without being overwhelmed, and the teach itself is pretty simple despite the number of things going on. Lost Ruins of Arnak has been my favorite discovery of recent years, and I highly recommend trying it out should you get the chance. Feel free to let me know what you think of the game if you do, and you can always find me on Twitter at Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. I know a lot of folks have resumed in-person board gaming with friends, but I really haven't yet. Even at home, between the stress of the apparently endless pandemic, and a home renovation which required us to pack away the table where we normally play games, right now I can't play anything that's too involved or takes up much of any space. But I still really need some gaming in my life. That's where light, charming, small games like Cat Sudoku come in. Cat Sudoku is a 2019 release by Tate Wu and his game company Sunrise Tornado. I reviewed Wu's previous release, Cat Rescue, back in episode 104, and I'm a big fan of Wu's work especially games that involve adorable cats illustrated by Kayami, who did the art for both Cat Rescue and Cat Sudoku. Simply put, Cat Sudoku is a roll-and-write variation on Sudoku. I'm sure you know how to play Sudoku, but just in case, you write numbers from 1 to 9 in a grid, making sure to never repeat the same number in any row or column. Cat Sudoku is different in a couple of key ways. First of all, rather than a simple 9x9 grid, the play area is an amorphous shape that more or less follows the shape of a cat drawn on the player sheet. More importantly, unlike classic Sudoku where you can write whatever numbers you want, in Cat Sudoku you roll four dice to see which numbers can be written in each round. The dice mean you only use the numbers from 1 to 6, and as you might guess, there are no rows or columns with more than six spaces. You get to make one of the numbers you rolled wild, which helps a lot, but you do have to use all four dice. Early in the game, this seems easy, you have so much space to fill, but by mid-game, you start to feel some tension. 
So you could easily box yourself into a situation where you will be compelled to write numbers into spaces where they violate the rules. Especially since Katsudoku uses a variation of the diagonal rule, where there's a penalty for placing the same number in adjacent diagonal spaces. I haven't seen this before, and it is tricky. It seems like every game, no matter how careful I am, I get at least one diagonal, and often more. The box comes with player sheets in four patterns at three difficulty levels. Spring is easy, summer and fall are medium, and winter is the most difficult. You get about 20 of each, but if you have a laminator, and come on, if you like roll and write games, you probably have a laminator, then you can easily make reusable player sheets. The box says one to six players, but in my opinion, Katsudoku is not a multiplayer game. There are parts of the game that just don't work very well with multiple players. At the end of every round, everyone has to count all the squares they've filled in to make sure no one has entered too many or too few. I'm sure the rule is there to make sure the game ends at the same time for everyone and that no one accidentally skipped a number they couldn't place without a penalty. But it gets really old really fast. By halfway through the game, you're spending more time counting than playing. But when playing solo, I just move each die to the side as I use it. Easy way to keep track, no need to count over and over. That alone makes Katsudoku a much snappier game when played solo. Scoring is also much easier because when I play solitaire games, to be honest, the score isn't that important to me. It's more about spending the time figuring out the puzzle. By the time I've finished, I have a pretty good sense of whether I did well or struggled, and that's really all I need. But with multiplayer, the score really does matter. You need to know exactly how everyone scored, and scoring Katsudoku is a bit fiddly. The grid is so much bigger than a standard Sudoku grid, and you have to look for not just numbers in the same row or column, but adjacent diagonals as well. You can mitigate this by marking any mistakes as soon as you see them, but you'll still end up having to pour over the entire grid looking for mistakes at the end. I don't know if Wu has any plans to port Katsudoku to a platform like Yukata or Board Game Arena, but I think that would solve pretty much all the issues I have with the multiplayer version. Those platforms enforce the rules so you couldn't accidentally write too many or too few numbers. And they also handle scoring. Basically, all the tedious steps would be taken care of. I don't mean the word tedious as a criticism of Katsudoku, at least not the solitaire version. A good friend once told me that the underlying purpose of every solitaire game is to waste time. I don't entirely agree with that. Many solitaire games have other goals, like, say, Sudoku, which people often play to help stay mentally sharp. But I think about that thing my friend said a lot when I play a solitaire game. If the game starts to feel like a waste of time, it's not really because it was wasting my time. It's because I wasn't enjoying the way it took up my time. If I enjoyed the time spent, it wasn't a waste. And Solitaire Katsudoku is, for me, a pretty perfect balance of time spent solving the puzzle versus time spent on overhead tasks like scoring. There's something lovely about whiling away an afternoon, binge-watching a favorite show, and playing a game like Sudoku. With cats. And that's Cat Sudoku. My name is Sarah. Look me up on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. In 2020, an unassuming board game that came in a box about the size of a medium hardcover book was released and it quickly became one of my top 10 board games I played for the first time in 2021. Red Cathedral, published by Dever Games and designed by Isra C. and Shell S., packs quite a punch with its medium-weight euro and dice rondelle, two mechanisms I enjoy in my board games. Players take on the role of architects charged with building the Red Cathedral. Each player will build different portions of the monument, and using your influence with clergy and the guilds, you'll attempt to earn the Tsar Ivan the Terrible's favor. 
The setup of the cathedral depends on how many players are playing, and you can randomly choose one of the building plan cards that the game comes with, which tells you how to build the cathedral, complete with tower heights that consist of at least one base and one dome, and variable sections in between. For each section of the cathedral, a random workshop tile is placed on it, and I'll explain what those do later in the game. Each player has their own player board and matching banners. These boards represent how many materials and resources you can hold in order to build sections of the cathedral. The more banners you get out onto the cathedral walls, the more storage you'll have. Each player also starts with 3, 4, or 5 rubles depending on if they're first, second, etc. Lastly, a majority of the game also involves the market board, where five different colored dice sit in a rondelle wheel separated by four groups, the Craftsman Guild, the Teamsters Guild, the Merchants Guild, and the Clergy. Points in this game are calculated by recognition and prestige. Initially, it takes five recognition points to get one prestige, but as you score more in the game, this gap eventually becomes one-to-one. -one. You can score either point through various actions in the game. This setup seems like a lot, but in reality, setup goes fairly quickly and the cathedral wall cards are small cards, so this game is not a table hog by any means. There's also a lot of variability in setup, as there are multiple cards you can choose from for each of the different guilds for each game. On your turn, you carry out one of the three actions. Claim a cathedral section, build sections of the cathedral, or acquire resources from the market. When you claim a cathedral section, you remove one of your banners from your player board and place it on the available cathedral card. You then take the workshop tile that's on the cathedral card and place it onto an empty workshop space on your player board and pay the rubles cost printed on this space. If you have no rubles available or simply don't want to pay, you can place the workshop tile face down into that space, but the tile will not give you any bonuses when you use this space later. A face-up workshop tile will give you a benefit when you later use the market action to acquire resources. Strategically picking which sections you want to build comes into play at the end of the game, where majority control will net you more points. When you build sections of the cathedral, you take up to three resources from your player board and place them on cathedral cards. Each card has requirements for its completion, and if a player delivers all those items, they collect the recognition points and are rubles. That cathedral card is then flipped over to represent it being complete, removing the resources that were sitting on there to place back into the bank, while leaving the player's banner to show who finished the section. Once a section is complete, a player can then decorate that section by delivering jewels on their turn, and not necessarily to a section that they themselves finish. Decorating the cathedral will also net prestige points. The last action is acquiring resources from the market. This is my absolute favorite thing about this game, as it requires using strategy and timing to collect what you want. Pick one die to use on the wheel, move that die however many spaces around each section of the wheel based on the pip showing, and where they land, they may perform any market actions in that space. A die cannot land on a space where there are three dice already, so that limits which one you'll choose. When you land, you obtain resources from that spot, multiplied by the number of pips on the die used. A player can additionally use influence or activate a workshop tile. To use influence, you look at the guild card that's in the quadrant and use one of its two actions. To activate a workshop tile, you look on your player board to see if the die you use has a workshop tile on it. If it does, you gain resources based on where the die in the workshop tile is sitting on the wheel. At the end of your market turn, you roll all the dice in the section you landed and end your turn. The game ends when six cathedral cards are completed, and the player gains three prestige points for triggering the end. Then all other players have one last turn. Everyone then moves their score counters back to the closest prestige point and scores one point for every five leftover materials. 
Now comes the cathedral scoring. Each section completed is two points plus one point for each ornamentation on it. This number comes into play for scoring the majority for each tower. Each player then counts the number of banners and ornamentations in each tower, and if they have the most, they score the full value of that tower. The second receives half, and the third receives half of that. The person with the most prestige points wins the game. Calculating tower majorities might get a little unwieldy at the end, but overall the game is a solid tight euro that allows for a lot of variability in later games. Red Cathedral isn't too tough to teach as there are really three main actions on your turn and the iconography on the cards is easy to understand. Plus the market roundel is such a clever mechanism that I don't see too often in euros. And most importantly, the box is so small compared to other euros of the same caliber. I've had a lot of fun playing this throughout 2021. And that's Red Cathedral. This is Meeple Lady for the 5 by. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Meeple Lady or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening. Bye. After a time of peace spent building cities and enjoying their well-earned beer, the dwarves must return to the mountains to face an age-old enemy. The dwarves will recall their old ways, digging tunnels and visiting ancient caverns, in order to vanquish their longtime foes, the dragons. Can you mine the mountains before the dragons overrun your cities? Hi, this is Ruel Gaviola. Let's take a look at Dice Miner, a game by Joshua DeBonis and Nikola Risteski, with art by Lil Chan and Gregors Pedricic. Dice Miner was published in 2021 by Atlas Games. In Dice Miner, you and your fellow dwarves are digging tunnels and mining for treasures and magic items, while trying to avoid deadly cavens and destructive dragons. You'll do this through three rounds of drafting dice from the mountain tray, scoring points for the dice you collect in your trove. During the excavation phase, you'll take turns selecting dice from the mountain tray until it's depleted. Any blue magic dice will be used during the magic phase to re-roll any of your dice. In the scoring phase, you'll score each type of dice in your trove. And finally, in the replenish phase, you'll re-roll all of your dice and prepare for another round of mining. After the mountain of dice has been depleted for a third time, the player with the most points wins. Now, there are plenty of games that feature dwarves. There are plenty of games featuring dice drafting and set collection and push your luck. Dice Miner manages to mash all of this up into an engaging 20 to 30 minute game that'll satisfy all sorts of gamers and non-gamers. What makes it so darn irresistible is that 3D mountain full of six-sided dice just waiting to be collected and rolled. The game's focal point is its blend of dice drafting and set collection. On your turn, you'll select one die from the mountain. This die cannot have another die on top of it. Yellow treasure dice score points based on how many gems are shown. The player with the most gems at the end of the round, however, will earn double their points. The tunnel dice are numbered 1 through 5, and you'll score points on sequential straights, adding their total up. So, if you've collected dice numbered 1 through 3 in your trove, you'll score 6 points. The black hazard dice are negative points for each cave-in or dragon shown. However, the green tool dice can help stop cave-ins and dragons. If you have a pickaxe, then your cave-ins are now positive points instead of negative. Likewise, a shield turns dragons from negative to positive points. And if you have more than one pickaxe or shield, they'll act as a multiplier. For example, two dragons are normally minus two points, but if you have three shields, they're now worth six points. Same goes for pickaxes and cave-ins. Of course, simply drafting one die at a time would be a pretty straightforward affair. Thankfully, Dice Miner has a neat little twist. All dice have one face depicting a beer. If you have a beer die in your trove, instead of drafting a die, you may yell, Cheers! Roll it and give it to another player. That player must accept the die, and then you're allowed to draft two dice, and you get to break the rule of taking a die from the top. 
Now you can grab those elusive dice buried beneath other dice, and you can take two of them. This simple yet clever mechanism really elevates the game. It gives you a bit more flexibility in choosing dice, and it never feels really mean because, hey, you're gifting someone a die, and sometimes it might roll into something they actually need. Besides, the magic dice do allow you to reroll any unwanted results, so you're not completely handcuffed by any opponents who give you a lot of beer. I also love the push your luck that's built into the game. For example, during the magic reroll phase, you can take a chance and try to take the lead in gems by rerolling one of your yellow treasure dice, hoping to overtake one of your opponents for that sweet double point bonus. Or, you can collect a bunch of hazard dice full of dragons and cavens and green tool dice. Then during the magic phase, re-roll these, hoping to turn negative points into positive. This can lead to a big scoring round if you hit those shield and pickaxe multipliers. After scoring for the round, everyone will re-roll all of the dice, except any that they choose to save by using treasure chests that they've rolled on their tool dice. What I love though is that start of the final round when you're literally rolling a fistful of dice. You may even find yourself using both hands. You'll resort all of your dice, then go back to the excavation phase, drafting dice and offering beers to your opponents to get more dice. And did I mention each player has a starting character that provides ongoing virtual dice? So, if I'm the Dragon Slayer, I have one shield and one magic icon every round that I can combine and use with my actual dice. Dice Miner comes with a solo variant that slightly alters the gameplay and scoring. Instead of giving away beer to gain two dice, you simply set it to the face of your choice. While the solo mode isn't quite as good as the multiplayer game, it does offer a decent single-player challenge. Yeah, I really dig Dice Miner. It's one of those unassuming titles that throws you for a loop once you see how fun it is. Thanks to my Twitch friend Slivers for gifting me a copy of Dice Miner. This has been Ruel Gaviola for the 5 by Thanks for listening. Find me on Twitter and Twitch at Ruel Gaviola. That's R-U-E-L-G-A-V-I-O-L-A. Hi, my name is Jose, and I'm going to share with you one of my favorite games that doesn't get enough recognition. This is actually a game that made me reconsider disliking an entire genre of games. Now, the game in question is called Dale of Merchants, originally released in 2015 by Snowdale Designs and designer Sammy Laxo. And let me introduce you to the town of Dale. In Dale, merchants from all around come to sell their goods and wares. And you are one of these merchants trying to set up a number of stalls to sell different things that you think everyone would be interested in. Dale of Merchants is a deck building game with a rotating market very similar to other deck building games like Star Realms or Ascension. If you're familiar with these games, you know about 90% of the rules for this one. Now, the biggest difference between those games and this game starts actually with the setup. Before you even start the game, you have to choose between a number of different animal folk that get included in the game. So do you want to play a game with pandas and macaws and raccoons? Or do you want to play a game with chameleons, raccoons, and monkeys? So you're going to choose a number of different animals to make the market deck. And you're going to shuffle them together. And you're going to, like other deck builders, buy cards to put them in your deck to make your deck better, bigger, and beefier. Now, here's where the biggest changes between most other deck builders and Dylan Merchants comes in. The first big difference is that whenever you buy a card... It doesn't go into your discard and then you have to wait for your deck to shuffle for you to hopefully get a chance to get it. Cards go into your hand right away and you immediately have access to whatever power that card gives you. Combine that with the next thing, which is you don't have to discard your entire hand in Dale of Merchants at the end of your turn. You just play what you want and keep what you want. And between buying cards and keeping them right away and keeping stuff that you didn't want to play earlier, 
it really opens up a lot of combos that allow you to set them off whenever you feel like you're ready instead of kind of just hoping you get it and set it off when you get a chance to. The other biggest difference between this and other deck building games is as you're making your deck bigger and beefier, you're getting better at doing these actions, but you're going to need to dismantle that deck. Because in order to win at Dale Merchants, you need to set up eight different stalls with goods that you've collected. So you're actively dismantling your deck and making it worse so that you can get closer to winning. And timing is everything in this game. When do you start dismantling your deck? Are, are your opponents in a good enough place where it's going to be really difficult for you to come back if you start dismantling your deck at the wrong time? And this is probably my favorite part of Dale Merchants. It gives me another decision point to make instead of just figuring out which cards would make my engine run better. I need to figure out what parts of my engine I need to start taking apart. So these small choices, while I know I don't sound like they're very large, really make for an interesting decision space within the deck building genre. Now, if that's not enough, cute animals, lots of variability, that's not enough for you. They've actually released three boxes of Dale of Merchants and a big box called the Dale of Merchants Collection, each of which has anywhere between six to eight new animals that can you can play with, and all the sets can be mixed together. So I don't think I've ever played a game in the past six years that I've owned these games that I have played the same. Every game is going to be different. And if you're in the Dale of Merchants Collection, they add even more variants and twists on the rules that you can add into each game. So you're always going to have a different experience if that's what you're looking for. If you like a certain experience, you can always replay with the same animals. Or if you feel just really lucky, you can play with the random animals and just sort of see what happens. So Dale of Merchants is a really good deck building game if you're into games that are quick, easy to understand, but offer a new way to think within a familiar space. And most of the boxes are actually relatively cheap. I think each numbered box runs about 25 bucks, and they're all in print at this point. So Dale of Merchants is a solid pickup, and I think it needs a lot more attention. Thank you. You've been listening to The Five By, the fast and friendly podcast by people who love board games. You can follow us on Twitter at Five By Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash five by games. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash five by games. Listen to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or visit our website, fivebygames.com. From all of us at the Five By, thanks for listening. <laughs>